Chapter Twenty Six, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by L. D. Hamilton. Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty Six, Part Two. Censure from my friends was swiftly silenced by the invective of Mason's friends. Their anger was displayed by the well-dressed mob which I encountered at Manchester. My address was to be delivered on Sunday afternoon, June 21st, in Free Trade Hall, the largest in England, which was crowded. Mr. Potter, their Member of Parliament, presided, and all the preachers were on the platform. Before proceeding to my lecture, I took care to exonerate the Chairman and Mr. Bright, and the Emancipation Society, from any connection with my correspondence with Mason. I had not proceeded far in my address when about two hundred men began a deliberate attack on the platform. This platform was five or six feet above the floor, and the assailants attempted to climb up. Some were pushed back by the preachers, but others succeeded and grappled with them. Meanwhile, a large number rushed forward for defense, and after a twenty-minute scrimmage, the English Confederates were overpowered and removed from the hall. It was a large mob, which had got into all the front seats, but it was not dangerous. It meant business. But this was not to harm us physically. It was to take possession of the chair and platform, and pass resolutions supporting Roebuck's motion for recognition of the Confederacy. They drew no arms, and had trusted to their numbers, but newspaper comments on my Mason correspondence had drawn such an enormous audience that they were vastly outnumbered. During the entire melee, I stood quietly at the desk, not one hand laid on me, and when the last mobsman disappeared, continued without omitting a word of my carefully prepared lecture, which was next day in circulation as a pamphlet, printed without my knowledge. Thus, I hardly merited the honor accorded me of having been mobbed in Free Trade Hall. The row was an advertisement for me, and also illustrated the spirit of the Confederates, who, in trying to seize the chair, imitated in their small way the attempt on the executive chair at Washington. At Manchester, I enjoyed the hospitality of Mr. Potter. He was a large gentleman with a happy, optimistic countenance, such as I have rarely seen. His long service to every progressive cause, his generosity with his wealth in all such movements, and his excellent judgment, on which the old corn law orators, Copton, Bright, W.J. Fox, had always depended, as now the emancipationists, made him a historical personage. The last time I saw this venerable member of Parliament was when he managed to attend, despite his great age, an annual dinner of the Cobden Club at Greenwich. 
on which occasion the special homage of the assembly was paid to him, Mrs. Fisher Unwin, Copton's daughter, and several other ladies descended from the old reformers being around him. After my Sunday afternoon lecture in Manchester, I left the same evening for London, and found my friends at Aubrey House cheerful at the turn the Mason incident had taken. Miss Sarah Ramond, sister of the eloquent colored American Charles Lennox Ramond, had for some years been adopted as Mrs. Taylor's companion, and could not fail to be pleased that I had set emancipation as the one vital aim in the war. I addressed, June 22nd, the following letter to the Times, which was at once published. To the editor of the Times, Sir, absence from London has prevented my giving such careful attention to the correspondence between Mr. Mason and myself as was necessary to make the explanation which the public on both sides of the ocean will naturally expect of me. In the correspondence, as it stands, there are three parties involved, namely, the abolitionists of America, myself, and Mr. Mason with his confederates. As to the first, it was to pounce upon them and compromise them with their government that Mr. Mason rushed into print so eagerly that, though only a little way from London, I did not receive his last letter until half a day after I had seen it in the Times. But I wonder that Mr. Mason did not see what the Americans will certainly see, that my second note to him admits that my authority extended definitely only to the declaration that the abolitionists of America were giving moral support to this war simply and only in the interest of emancipation, and that when that issue ceased to be involved, they would no longer sustain it but that with regard to the special offer i must write out and get a special authority this left it yet an open question whether the anti-slavery men were prepared to negotiate with the confederate authorities he springs his snare before they are in it they are not compromised at all they do indeed stand committed to an unwillingness to prosecute this terrible war for any less important aim than the complete wiping out of their country's crime and shame. But it has all along been their avowed position that they are, to quote Wendell Phillips, willing to accept anything, union or disunion, on the basis of emancipation. Then, of the abolitionists, I alone am implicated by this correspondence, and here I am ready to confess that my inexperience in diplomatic and political affairs has led me to make a proposition, the form of which is objectionable. Recognizing Mr. Mason only as an unofficial, though representative, Southerner, whose views would be a test of the disposition of the rebels on the subject of slavery, and anxious to afford that test to certain very eminent literary men in England, who acknowledged that the reply to such a proposition would decide their feelings with regard to the issue, I inferred hastily and improperly that the right to declare the object of the abolitionists in the war 
justified me in sending the proposition to Mr. Mason personally. As this, my first correspondence with the enemy, was undertaken only in the interest of my country, and was virtually a demand for the surrender of the enemy's capital, I shall hope that the apparent disloyalty of it, of which I was unconscious, will be condoned by the country I meant to serve. But Mr. Mason and his confederates are implicated in this matter in a way to which I desire to call the attention of those gentlemen to satisfy whose minds I wrote the proposition, and of all others who think that the South is fighting for any worthier independence than impunity in permanently robbing another race of its independence. In order to compromise the abolitionists, Mr. Mason concedes that I had authority to make the offer of independence for emancipation. He acknowledges, on the strength of Mr. Garrison's letter of credit, that I had that authorization to which, when shown him, he had promised a reply. So the English public know now, with a cleanness which my own blundering way of evoking such a confession did not merit, what the reply of the South is to a proposition offering her freedom, as she calls it, on the condition of her according the same to the millions whom she oppresses. Whether I had the right to make the offer or not, it is answered. The believer in the golden rule has only to ask himself what would be his interest in the success of the northern arms if his own wife and children were today under the lash on a southern plantation, now that we have Mr. Mason's assurance that every gateway except that of war is closed. I am, etc. Meanwhile, the effect of this Mason affair in America was not so favorable as in England. The leading anti-slavery people repudiated my action with a vehemence which I never understood until many years later I discovered that their explosion occurred before the correspondence arrived. The first announcement in New York was in a brief summary of News from Europe in the Tribune of June 30th. A correspondence between Mr. Mason and Mr. Conway is published. Mr. Conway, claiming to be authorized to offer in the name of the abolitionists and leaders of the anti-slavery parties an active cooperation for an immediate cessation of hostilities, if the South would commence at once the work of emancipation. Mr. Mason asked for the credentials of Mr. Conway, and Mr. Conway informed him that he would send for them to America. Mr. Mason declared, however, that the South would never be able to enter seriously into such a negotiation. What the summary given in Boston was, I know only by a letter written by Mr. Garrison to the Tribune, dated June 30th, which shows that not only were all my cautious provisions for placing the emancipation under the guarantee of, quote, a liberal European commission, etc., unquote, omitted, but the anti-slavery leaders were pledged to withdraw, quote-unquote, supplies from the war. This substitution of the military term supplies for support 
looks like ingenuity on the part of the summerist. In Mr. Garrison's letter to the Tribune, which I did not see at the time, his first reason for repudiating my proposal was, quote, that no reliance can be placed upon the word of those who stand before the world black with perfidy and treason, and in the most dreadful sense as ostis umani generisa. I should, of course, never have dreamed of suggesting, even in a proposal I knew would be refused, trusting emancipation to slaveholders. The actual correspondence came by another ship on July 1st, and appeared in the Tribune of July 2nd. Whether it had been read by Wendell Phillips before his speech at Framingham on July 4th, I do not know. In that speech, referring to me, he said, I think that his intentions were as honest as the midday sun is clear. Hear, hear, and applause. I think that his devotion to the great cause of human liberty is as single-hearted as when he took his father's seventy slaves, every one of their holders a rebel but himself, and led them with such devoted and self-sacrificing earnestness to freedom on the northern banks of the Ohio. Loud applause. I know at the same time that he does not represent in that offer one single man on this side of the Atlantic. I do not say I believe it, but I say, my own knowledge joined to his, I know it. Now I wish to say further that I entirely agree with the essence of that offer. The Union without liberty is today tenfold more accursed than it was at any time the last quarter of a century. Union without liberty I spit upon. But if the sun were forbidden ever again to rise, and I could have sunrise again by asking Mason, I would remain in the dark forever, rather than speak to the author of the Fugitive Slave Bill. This inconsequent declaration about Mason, who was no more guilty of the said bill than the congressman who passed it, and the northern president, Fillmore, who signed it, was not important in itself. Phillips would have embraced Mason could he thereby have ended oppression for others, but his rhetoric was significant. Although he agreed, as he said, with the essence of my letter, and although only one voice, the anti-slavery standard, New York, said that the war should be continued even were slavery not involved, it became plain to me that the old peace principles of abolitionism had largely vanished. In England, the Mason incident was closed so far as concerned myself by the defeat of Roebuck's bill, to which Mason's arrogant reply to me was said to have contributed, and by the odium under which he soon after finally left England. But those events did not reach America, and it was some time before any sign of a reaction there favorable to me appeared. The London papers reported from their American correspondents only rage against me. I felt sure that a different feeling would prevail in those whose esteem I most valued. I was prepared to suffer obloquy for the sake of unmasking Mason, 
but my terrible anxiety was for my wife. Though her mother and brother George were with her at Concord, it was inevitable that all this anger should give her keen distress. I had, of course, written to her by every mail, and suggested that if she and our intimate friends thought that my stay in England should be prolonged, she had better join me in London. My departure had long been fixed for early September, but I concluded that it must be postponed until I had time for full correspondence with my wife. And now, my dear friends, Mr. and Mrs. W. D. Howells, came into my gloom as angels. Howells, then consul at Venice, had written to me on March 24th, enclosing some verses for the Commonwealth. We had not exchanged letters for a long time, and he had no knowledge of my intention to visit Europe. But he wrote in the letter, which was forwarded to me from Boston, these sweet words. To tell you the truth, you and Mrs. Conway are two people whom we should very much like to see in Venice. The spring is coming in after the slow, sweet fashion of spring in southern lands. The Adriatic is warming up with the view of being bathed in. The sun is bringing out all that is brightest and loveliest in the city and embroidering the islands and the terra firma with flowers. Four weeks ago, we gathered daisies on the Lido, and now the almond trees are heavy with bloom and bees. Besides all this, we live in the old Palazzo Faliero, where Marino Faliero, according to all the gondoliers, was born. And we have a piano, and a balcony on the Grand Canal, and the most delightful little breakfasts in Venice. You will come, won't you? The we is not used editorially here. Of course you know that I am married, and to whom, though I've never heard directly from you. I used to hear a great deal about you, in letters from Cincinnati. You have an additional merit in my eyes, because you met Eleanor there. In a letter to my wife of May 8th, I copied Howells's note, and wrote, At this beautiful place, Aubrey House, with its quiet park, in which I cannot imagine that I am near a city of three millions, in which I can hear the cuckoos and nightingales singing, I find that sweet rest that I was so much in need of when I left home, and I only need you at my side, and Eustace and Emerson on the green grass, to make me perfectly happy. When a few weeks later, beautiful Aubrey House Garden was darkened under my cloud, and I could no more hear the songsters because of the angry notes coming across the sea. A sweeter vision and melody than all of them came to me, as I read again those words from Venice. O oh, my constant loyal friends, in whose friendship unbroken these forty-four years I have found happiness, you can never know the heavenly message brought to me in that sad hour by the missive which had winged its way so far across land and sea. For it was to me a token soon to be fulfilled of the subsiding of my little deluge and the return of estranged hearts. An exchange of letters proved that these friends were prepared to receive me at any moment, and I soon started southward. I left London on June 26th. 
Among my wife's papers, I found a letter written from Bologna which states, I had a long interview yesterday with Mr. Adams, the American minister in London. He says that the first letter was certainly a mistake, but that after that I did the very best thing I could, and that he regards my course as most honorable. He says no harm, and possibly some good, has been done in England by it, and he hopes no evil will result in America. He has no doubt that a note to Mr. Lincoln or Mr. Seward, declaring that the letter was written without proper reflection, and was well meant, would cause me to stand as well as I could desire with them. Adams was very kind to me indeed. Just what next step in the matter should be, I do not know. So, I will take none as yet. I begin to look forward to a brief rest at Venice, which I much need. If I could just now retire entirely from the world, I would like it much. How I envy the simple and happy peasants I watched for hours today, sunning themselves along the shore or playing in the water, so free from care, and I so full of it. The tailors have been so kind and cheering to me. This morning I left them. Just before I left, I received a letter from the Duke and Duchess of Argyle, he is in the present ministry, saying that they were desirous of making my acquaintance, and asking me to breakfast with them Saturday. I declined, being determined not to postpone my visit to Venice. You had best stay with my sister at Easton until I return, unless you determine that I had best not return, in which case you must come over here. The ocean voyage on a Cunarder will not be bad. At any rate, we must meet soon. In Paris, I learned that the Conway Mason correspondence had been translated there, and that the animadversions against the Confederacy excited by it, notably an article in the Journal des Debats, had been the severest blow yet dealt to the Confederate intrigues in France. I think I received some reassurance of this kind from Christopher Pierce Cranch, the American poet and artist residing in Paris, who knew my relations with the Cranch family in Washington and Cincinnati, and in whose house I had a cordial reception. In Turin, I called on our minister, George P. Marsh, who spoke of the affair in the same sense and spirit as Minister Adams. Such encouragements, however, did not lay the vision of that dear one so far away with her two little children passing alone through the first heavy trial of her married life, a trial inflicted by me. The cordial welcome received in the beautiful home of my friends in Venice and all their reassuring words about my trouble could not quite restore me. Acute erysipelas broke out, fever set in, and the official Austrian physician could not do much for a case of mere worry. But after five or six days, a cure was effected by a letter from my wife announcing that they were all well that she had sold our house at a fair price, also our furniture, and would sail from Boston for Liverpool on the ship Arabia 
August 19th. In Venice, I found my Avalon. Those friends healed my wounds of heart and mind. In their charming old Casa Faliero, the house is described in Howells's Venetian life. We used to sit on the balcony overlooking the Grand Canal, eating our lotus in that city where it seemed always afternoon. Yet how beautiful were the mornings! I do not remember one that brought rain. Often Howells and I rose at dawn, took coffee in the great piazza while watching the morning tints painting St. Mark's, and had our ramble through some byway of the dreamland before returning to breakfast. Then, while the consul was in his office, never serving his country more profitably to it than when his literary task was undisturbed by official business, Mrs. Howells was my guide to the pictures and churches they loved best. After dinner, we sat in some big café in the piazza, observing the promenaders and the costumes of many regions, returning early, however, for Howells was writing a novelette in poetic form, and read us in the evening what he had written during the day. Howells was also engaged in writing his Venetian Life, the publication of which in London I had the happiness of furthering, and of greeting with its first review in the Fortnightly. In that book, certainly the finest ever written about Venice, I to this day move again amid scenes and incidents of that happy July. How well I remember our Sunday morning voyage to Chioggia, and Howells's charming talk of its poet Goldoni. I indulge myself with quoting here the following incident. As we passed up the shady side of their wide street, we came upon a plump little blond boy lying asleep on the stones with his head upon his arm. And as no one was near, the artist of our party stopped to sketch the sleeper. Atmospheric knowledge of the fact spread rapidly, and in a few minutes we were the center of a general assembly of the people of Kyoja, who discussed us and the artist's treatment of her subject in open congress. They handed round the airy chaff as usual, but were very orderly and respectful nevertheless. One father of the place, quelling every tendency to tumult, by kicking his next neighbor, who passed on the penalty, till, by this simple and ingenious process, the guilty cause of the trouble was infallibly reached and kicked at last. I placed a number of soldi in the boy's hands, to the visible sensation of the crowd, and then we moved away and left him, heading, as we went, a procession of Kyoshoti, who could not make up their minds to relinquish us, till we took refuge in a church. When we came out, the procession had disappeared. But all around the church door, and picturesquely scattered upon the pavement in every direction, lay boys asleep, with their heads upon their arms. As we passed laughing through the midst of these slumberers, they rose and followed us with cries of, Mititizu! Mititizu! Take me down! Take me down! They ran ahead, 
and fell asleep again in our path, and round every corner we came upon a sleeping boy. And, indeed, we never got out of that atmosphere of slumber, till we returned to the steamer for Venice, where Kyoja shook off her drowsy stupor, and began to tempt us to throw Soldi into the water, to be dived for by her awakened children. The artist was Mrs. Howells herself. I stood holding an umbrella to shield her from the sun, while Howells did his best to keep some small space around her and prevent the eager boys from interrupting the work by their impatience to see it. I remember well the buxom and comely mother, who had been informed that her child was on the pavement with a crowd around him, pushing her way frantically to the spot, and the transition of her face from fear to joy when she arrived just as Howells was filling the sleeping boy's hands with Soldi. But Howells made in his book a little sketch of me, too, while I was in my sweet dream in Venice. Upon my word, he writes, I have sat beside wandering editors in their gondolas, and witnessed the expulsion of the newspaper from their nature, while, lulled by the fascination of the place, they were powerless to take their own journals from their pockets, and instead of politics, talked some bewildered nonsense about coming back with their families next summer. I was the model for that little picture, but my friend did not venture to tell how far the spell carried me. I actually took those two friends about house-hunting, and priced three or four charming homes to which I would bring my little family. I sat me down in balcony and gondola, and said, I will return no more, or only long enough to meet Arabia the Blessed at Liverpool, where I would say, Come, my wife, I have prepared for you a sweet retreat from all this strife for which you and I were not made and where we will forget our troubles and humiliations. In my life, many beautiful visions in the distance have proved hard and jagged realities when reached. In my eighteenth year in Warrington, there rose over my law books dreams and visions of Venice, and I laid there the scene of my story, Confessions of a Composer. But my dreams were poor, compared with the reality of Venice. No doubt this was largely due to my having at my side a poet. Howells and I used to visit certain of the beautiful things repeatedly. They were like personal friends. There was, in particular, a very ancient stone statue in the corner of a garden, which inspired us both to write about it. The old St. Christopher with the child on his shoulder, its little hand bearing up the world, as indeed the children do, has in his face no pain but serene patience. A solitary vine had climbed over from behind the garden wall on which the statue stands, and twined and intertwined all about the saint and the child, binding them together with manifold ties. When I went on my last afternoon to bid farewell to St. Christopher, it appeared to me a sort of symbol of Venice under Austrian rule. The city seemed turned to stone by the presence of the Austrian. 
for I had just been conversing with an exceedingly intelligent young Venetian Republican, of whom I had asked wherein consisted the oppression of Austria. He said, quote, Austria is not oppressive. Francis Joseph is one of the most liberal of European rulers. There is nothing he is more anxious to do than to make us in Venice happy and contented. Our theatres are closed, but we have closed them. The government would make any outlay to have us amused. It has three times a week the best band in the world to perform in the Piazza San Marco. But the Italians will not walk there, and have given up taking their evening promenade since 1848. Each of us has about as much personal freedom as he could use. But it is nationality in us. It is nature struggling by her own laws of affinity. We are in a deadly conflict which will soon burst out with Austria, as animals are, with those born to prey on them. We are gravitating to the government of Victor Emmanuel, on the principle that moves a magnet to a lodestone. Close quote. Quote, when, said Goethe, I heard grand mass in Venice, I wished myself either a child or a devotee, Close quote. I was glad to find myself more a child than a devotee of this new time, whose devotions had passed away from the ancient and artistic symbols, and the living vines climbing about them, to find a stony martyrdom in the mere fact of being under a flag not Italian. All of our countries are under the practical dominion of institutions come from other races, our churches, Sabbaths, constitutions, marriage laws, etc., infinitely more important to our happiness than any flag, are derived from alien races. Practical Englishmen have too much appreciation of realities to desire revolution against the German family on their throne, but give piles of money to incite Italians against Austria and France. One day a beautiful Italian countess breakfasted with us at the Casa Faliero. She spoke very good English, and when we were on the balcony, talked eloquently about the wrongs of Venice. She lit a large cigar, but even that did not console her. Her tears flowed down on the cigar but I repressed my smile. When I left Venice in August, I bore with me a letter from Mrs. Howells to my wife. It is before me now, as sweet a letter as woman ever wrote, picturing the enchantment of Venice and crying, Do come, do come. End of chapter 26, part 2 Recording by L. D. Hamilton